Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We want to see Jesus. This is not Bible lessons for their own sakes. We are being discipled by the Word of God. We want to see Him, hear Him. We want Him to speak to us. We want to become like Him. We don't want to become like me, for heaven's sake. We want to become like Him. I want to become like Him. And so we go to the Word and we ask, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? We go right on through this thing. And today, we're going to watch Him wash His disciples' feet again. But we're going to let him bring out a deeper truth. Come, Holy Spirit, open our ears and eyes, soften our hearts. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years makes no difference. We would put on our sandals and our robe, and we would walk right behind our master. We would live out our lives in this generation, even as those 12 lived out their lives in that generation. Come, Holy Spirit, empower us, grace us, and grace me to let the word come through. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We're in John chapter 13. And I'm going to read from verse 6 down to verse 11. But I'll start just narrating up at verse 4. Remember this. This is really beautiful. This is this John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. All of those chapters of John are one evening. Dear John, the, the, the disciple, to be a, the apostle, took notes. Hallelujah, bless his heart. He took notes, and he relates to us what was said and what was done on that last evening. Now, Jesus would resurrect. He is with his, with his spirit, but this was the end of an era. This was the end of the discipleship, where he is walking with them day by day, where he is present with them. He has tricked Judas so that Judas can't turn him in until he's done. He will, at the end of the evening, actually go out to the Mount of Olives and wait to be arrested, wait for the religious police to come with Judas leading them. But he wants this evening. He wants to serve them the last Passover. He wants to take the cup and the bread and serve that to him. To them, he wants to teach them very, very important things. He's laying a foundation to them. And the first thing he does, I mean, apparently the table's set, you know, you're in that upper room for Passover, and the first thing he does is to get up from the table, lay his, what would be his prayer shawl. You know, you say, what did he lay aside? Well, they, they, he and they regularly wore a prayer shawl. Now, you'll often see when you see Israel, you'll see these uh, white prayer shawls with the blue stripes and the, or the black stripes and that kind of thing, uh, made, out of, made out of wool, many of them. But in those days, they, they lived in those things. And, and they, they didn't have the stripes and all of that, I think. They were just, but they were cloth. They were their prayer shawl. And, uh, and some of them, actually, as I understand it, even had a, a hole in the middle like a serape. But you'd wear it for warmth. You'd sleep in it when you're traveling. I mean, the thing was part, part of life. And so he, he gets up, and he takes that prayer shawl off and puts it over somewhere. And then he takes a long linen cloth. Ours is a towel, and that kind of guess like, what towel? It, it's, it's linen is what it is, and they generally were long cloths, probably fairly wide. And he took that, and he actually wraps it around himself like a skirt, I think, because that's how uh, servants uh, dressed. You had, the, you had the skirt, you kind of you just wrap this thing. So he wraps himself, dresses himself like a servant. And then he gets up, and he, and he kneels down at each, each one of their feet. Now, they're either... They're, reclining, or he would have them sit or stand, I don't know. And he knelt down at their feet, and he began to wash their feet. Uh, in the course of this, Peter objects. This is just too much for him to bear. And he rejects, and he says, you never will you wash my feet. And, and, he, and uh, Jesus appeals to him and says, well, you'll understand later. Just let me do this. Peter being Peter pushes back, says, no. <laughs> so Jesus says, 
then you're, <laughs> you have no part in me, and you'll go to hell. <laughs> Basically. Peter then says, I want a bath. <laughs> Aren't we grateful for Peter? Yeah. He, he really does press the boundaries. I mean, he's an impatient fellow. But may I remind you, I, what, I, what I like about Peter, and I think what Jesus liked about Peter, was he, he was in the game. He is testing his boundaries. He is arguing. He's not sitting stand back being passive. He is in this thing, testing the things. And he became, he and John were the leaders of the early church. I mean, this guy, this Peter, I mean, raises a woman uh, from the dead who's been dead for eight or nine hours. I mean, this guy's got the goods. Uh, he's, he, he really grows. He really learns. So as much as I uh, sort of enjoy making fun of Peter at times, and he does provide the material, uh, <laughs> He, he became a great apostle. He is our apostle. This is our apostle, Peter, we're talking about. So we see this, and, and we learn something very important from it. Let's, let's listen to this. Verse 4. After Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, again, that, it would be that prayer shawl, and taking a towel, a linen, a linen, long linen cloth, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin, and I'll have more to say about that basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the, with the linen cloth with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Would you say that? He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Say that. And then he goes on to say, and you are clean, speaking to the disciples, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, meaning Judas Iscariot. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. It's not enough to start out clean. We must arrive clean. Would you say that? It's not enough to start out clean. We must arrive clean. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. But, a, but a, on a day-to-day -day basis, sins keep happening. And those sins, if left unattended, have the power to erode the very faith that saved us. Did you hear that? Sin has a, pro a power to it. It is not a neutral force. It isn't like God is just kind of a little ledger and he said, well, you did that wrong and you did that wrong. When you and I sin, we release a deadly energy. You, you know, you've seen it. I mean, this, this is for Christians, non-Christians. It doesn't change. Sin is just a commodity. It is what it is. And so when I violate the ways of God, when I, when I let my temper rage or when I let whatever, whatever it is, I do damage. I do damage to myself. I do damage to my relationship with God. I do damage to you, don't I? And don't you? See, it just is what it is. And so we, we have going around kind of a, a, a theological approach that says, well, now, sin's just not a big deal anymore. I mean, after all, when you, Jesus died on the cross, how, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. See, they're all forgiven. Don't worry about it. And so there's even people who say, you don't need to repent. You don't need to do that. It's all covered, man. It's all covered. Like, just don't worry about it. Go ahead, sin on. In other words, keep, keep, keep abusing your kids. Keep being cruel. Keep being a liar. Doesn't matter. You're forgiven. And it's just, it's just naive beyond belief. Just keep issuing all this death into your relationships, into your career, into your calling, into your mind. Just go ahead and just violate away. Just damage everything, but you're forgiven. Doesn't mean a problem at all. And that's the way it's being approached right now, and you can see it. You can see it uh, in, in so much of, of what's called Christianity. It's, it's really damaging us. And that's why our life with Jesus must be a daily walk, not a transaction that took place because of a prayer we once prayed or a doctrine we affirmed. Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with him in which he will teach us how to avoid sin and draw us close to himself and wash us when we do sin. 
If we refuse to walk in that relationship and allow our sins to accumulate unconfessed, we expose ourselves to forces which harden our hearts and quench our faith. Which is why Jesus, during that final evening with his disciples, taught them a lesson they would never forget. He took a long linen cloth, wrapped it around his waist so that he looked like a household servant, picked up the foot washing basin found in every home, filled it with water, knelt down at the feet of each disciple, washed the dust off his feet, and dried them on the cloth he was wearing. That moment was filled with meaning. Jesus was certainly modeling the attitude of humble service. He told his disciples that he was giving them an example. He wanted them to serve each other the same way. But there was a deeper meaning than that. He was teaching them the importance of regularly confessing their sins and coming to him for cleansing. He was explaining that becoming a disciple isn't the end of a person's struggle with sin. You understand that? I just keep hammering this because it's, it's, it gets taught. People say, well, when you become a Christian, all things are new. And, and so everything of sin has passed away. You're just a brand new creature. I had one fellow who, who believes that real strongly and we were having this discussion, and I said, well, then, where does it come from? I mean, where do these thoughts and stuff, I mean, wh where do they come from? He says, well, I suppose demons. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, but it seems to me I, I can do pretty well without them. Look, what the Bible teaches, and this is the thing, the Bible says my spirit is new. When I receive Jesus Christ, I get the heart of stone taken out, and I get a heart of flesh put in. I mean, God does that. It's a miracle work. And, and when, I'm, when he's done with me, I love him and I want to please him. Isn't that true of you? If you come to Jesus Christ, don't you want, you love him and you want to please him. All right. So that's the heart. That's what, and then that is joined to the Holy Spirit. And, and I've got God with me and all of that. But my flesh is not yet redeemed. When will my flesh be redeemed? I mean, hasn't Christ redeemed all of me? Yes, he has. But when, well, when does it get redeemed? In the resurrection. And not till then. So this body of mine is still dying. And this body of mine still has old, its old sort of impulses and junk in it. And so I now have to learn to manage this body. I am not simply uh, home free. I've got a body that, wants, that still has, when you get it tired, you get it angry, you get it whatever. Uh, my, this body of mine has impulses and thoughts and passions and stuff that still torment me. And they bring up all kinds of stuff. I've had people say, you know, I can't believe I've been a Christian this long and I still have these kinds of thoughts. And I'm thinking, you will till you die. That doesn't mean you're ungodly. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean you're a phony. It doesn't mean any of that kind of thing at all. It means you've still got an old body. And you'll get a new one and it's called a spiritual body, which doesn't mean it's ghost-like. It means it's, it's submitted to the Spirit. Yeah, your resurrection body will be solid, but it will not have those ugly passions. It will not have those impulses. Won't that be lovely? Can you imagine? I mean, that's called heaven, and we'll, we'll be in that forever uh, on, a, on a new recreated earth. I mean, God's got something really marvelous in store for us. But you just have to understand that that's there. So what do I do? I have to learn, Paul says, to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. So now I've got the power. I've got to learn how to put those things to death and walk in the holiness in the purity God has for me. But it's a skill. It's something I learn to do. And I, even at the best, I still stumble at times. I still make mistakes. It catches me off guard, doesn't it you? Yeah. All right. And I need my feet washed. And so do all of us. Hallelujah. Just as a person's sandaled feet, finally, walking through life as a disciple is like walking the dusty roads of Israel. Just as a person's sandaled feet naturally become covered with dirt and sweat, so a believer's heart becomes affected by the sins we commit. It's impossible to walk through this world and not be soiled by it. There are temptations of the flesh, spiritual assaults, and constant pressure from the culture around us. So sins occur, mistakes happen, and bad choices are made. And those sins need to be dealt with, not ignored. All sin has a spiritual power attached to it. It's not a neutral force. It always produces death which means it always brings some measure of separation from God. Just because a person believes in Jesus Christ does not mean that person is automatically protected from that damage. It wounds believers, 
and unbelievers alike. And when a believer sins, it affects our relationship with God. It reflects our, affects our relationship with others. It sours our mood and strips away our confidence before God, just as it would an unbeliever, which is why a believer must not allow sins to accumulate. We must bring them to Jesus and let him wash them away. And we must do that as often as the word shows us our sin or the Holy Spirit convicts our heart for as long as we live. What's the last thing he does in that? I mean, the first thing he does in that upper room, he gets up, washes their feet, and he's not just modeling humility. And that's what's being explained when he explains to Peter what this is about. When he says, if I don't do this, you have no part in me. That's not just humility. He's teaching them something. He's saying, I will be with you in spirit. And when you sin, you come to me and let me wash your feet. And I will be washing your feet for the rest of your life. Isn't that beautiful? It's a powerful image. I mean, what a, what a blessed thing he gave them. Conviction, confession, repentance, and freshly laying hold of the cross and resurrection is meant to be a normal part of a believer's life. We become righteous the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ and surrender to his lordship. But that doesn't mean unattended sin won't damage us. It will. And if left unattended long enough, it can erode the faith that saved us. It, it can. That's why it's called death. It can erode the very faith that saved us. You become so ashamed, so guilty, so hard, uh, so, so enwrapped in that thing that after a while... You, that, that faith in Jesus Christ gets to be a lower and lower and dimmer and dimmer flame. That's why Jesus rose up from the meal and put his outer cloak aside. And taking a linen cloth, he wrapped it tightly around himself and began to wash the disciples' feet. We serve communion once a month. I know churches that serve it once a year. Uh, and I was talking to somebody and they said, well, we don't want it to become, you know, uh, boring or too familiar. I thought, well, once a year, that'll do it. Um, <laughs> you know, things become boring when you don't understand them. Yeah, it's like you can, you know, you can do certain things if you have no idea why you're doing, and then it's boring. But if, if, if suddenly it's filled with meaning and maybe approached a bit freshly each time, uh, it doesn't get boring at all. It becomes, uh, becomes a part of your life, you might say, something important to you. I also felt, this was something actually the Lord showed me in... in um, in the prayer closet, I was, I was just, I saw several things years ago. We've been doing them ever since. And that was to put communion across the front when we have service and to allow people during worship to come and take it as they will, if they wish to. Uh, I did last night. Uh, actually, I did, I did this morning, didn't I? Yes, I just took it again, this, this service. Uh, it's not superstitious. It's not like I can't deal with the Lord without, without the bread and the cup. But it's just such a vivid, powerful, tangible way of laying hold of him. And so I, I, I bring him my, my sins or my weakness, my attitudes. Often in worship, sort of, I become aware of things <laughs> and maybe more honest in those moments. And I can just dump those things. So I, don't, I just don't say, well, yeah. I, I, I say, Lord Jesus, I just give you that attitude. I just give you those things. I place them on your broken body, and I thank you for dying for me. And I receive that washing of, the, of your life poured out for me. You died, and I'm clean. Sometimes I give him my weakness. Lord, I'm tired or I'm weary. I'm confused. I ask you to give me your strength. I ask you to give me your, 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 your energy. You see, we exchange things in communion. I give him my sickness and he gives me health. I give him my sin and he gives me mercy and forgiveness and righteousness. I, I give him my, my, my weariness and he gives me his, his strength and clarity of mind. You exchange with God. It's a deep spiritual thing if, if you lay hold of it that way. Um, so communion is here on a regular basis because all of us need that. We just need, I mean, you don't have to use communion to do that, but it's there because of this. Because I think you and I need to regularly lay hold of the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, not, not just one prayer when I was 13. I, need, I regularly need to just bring my stuff to him and let him wash me. Uh, I'm not renouncing what I believe in his, in, his, in his finished work. I'm not saying that at all, but I, I'm just constantly keeping that faith, that flame alive, that trust in him. I'm keeping my conscience clean. I'm just, I'm not taking him for granted. I'm walking carefully before him. Does that make sense? Let's re-enter re that, that upper room for a minute. When Jesus knelt down in front of Peter, Peter recoiled. 
His respect for Jesus simply would not allow him to participate in what was happening. He exclaimed, Lord, do you wash my feet? Meaning, no, I can't permit this. Jesus assured him that his actions were symbolic and their spiritual meaning would become evident in the future. One would have hoped that Peter would have accepted that explanation and humbly submitted to the process. But instead, he refused to believe that Jesus knew what he was doing. That's the, that is the chutzpah in it. I mean, it's like, come on, when he says there's a reason, just shut up and let him do it. <laughs> For goodness sake, you know, and he didn't. He defied him by saying, never shall you wash my feet. Now, let me give you the literal Greek. You shall not wash my feet into the coming messianic age. Oh, my goodness. To which Jesus quickly replied, using language just as aggressive as Peter's. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Meaning, if I don't do this, you won't belong to me and you'll perish when you die. Shocked and frightened, Peter then begged for a bath. He said, Lord, not my feet only, but my, also the hands and the head. Which, to which Jesus replied with a statement that opens to us the spiritual meaning behind the symbol of foot washing. He said, the one who has bathed has no need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. He made a distinction between a person taking a bath, would you say taking a bath? And a person washing the dust off their feet. Say, washing the dust off their feet. And announced that his disciples, with the exception of Judas, were already clean because they had taken a bath. They didn't need another bath, but they would, have to, they would need to have their feet washed whenever they became dirty. Even Jesus' distinction concerning Judas helps us understand the truth he was teaching that evening. He said, not all of you are clean. Clearly, Judas had not partaken of the bath, which must refer to the forgiveness of sins, which comes through faith in Jesus. The washing, then, must refer to the ongoing cleansing, which occurs when we repent and confess our sins after feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back. Peter's feet. On that evening, Jesus taught his disciples that they needed ongoing cleansing. When Peter initially refused to let him wash his feet, Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then he explained that there was a difference between Peter's initial bath, which was the righteousness he received when he became a believer in Jesus, and Peter's need to have his feet washed from those sins that arise by walking through life. John actually allows us to watch Peter go through that process. After Jesus was arrested... Peter vehemently denied knowing him three times. You recall this? Fear overcame him, and he did the very thing he had promised he would never do. Yet Jesus did not abandon Peter. Let me stop and re remind you of this. This, is, this happened earlier. Jesus said uh, you, that you will all leave me. There's going to something, you know, when, I, when, 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 I am, when they strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered, you are all going to leave me. And Peter said, I will never leave you. And then he added this, which really could not have made him popular. Even though these all would leave you, I won't. Everybody's back there going. <laughs> this was not his big moment with the guys. To which Jesus, having to deal with Peter, as Peter said to him, before the cock crows in the morning, you'll have denied me three times. Three times. By the way, roosters crow about four in the morning, if you've ever been somewhere where they, they do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so by, they, when we were in Israel this last time, I, I have seen this place years ago, but I had really never been given an explanation of it and taken down and seen what they've done now. They actually have found the high priest's home, which, I mean, from that time. So Annas and, and Caiaphas and all. It's an enormous complex. In fact, they found it, and it's right there in the Jewish quarter, right near the temple area. It's very valuable, important land. And all of this incredible archaeology is underneath. So the, the government actually built up a huge platform. I mean, I think it's just, it's a, it's a large area that's platformed, and then all the buildings and things are built on top of this platform with all of this underneath. And what, it, what they found was the high priest's house. And so you've got all of these ritual baths in this house. You've got these painted frescoes. It's extremely wealthy. 
Uh, you, I, you've got a foot washing thing, <laughs> uh, all, all of that. And they found the courtyard. I mean, this is the original courtyard. So we stood there in that courtyard. Now, there's, those homes usually had two courtyards. One is the courtyard interior, which the, which the house, rooms are around. And then one is the, an exterior courtyard between the outer fence, as it were, and the, and the houses itself. So which one Peter's in isn't said, but we were standing there in that courtyard. And, and right next to it is the, uh, is the uh, uh, meeting room, the big elaborate uh, and some of the frescoes, I think, still still there. You can still see the frescoes. You know, that's that's where you paint wet plaster. You can still see the the walls, as it were. And that would have been where Jesus was being tried and and having this encounter. And by the way, the hall goes by with an open door uh, to the courtyard. It does say at one point Jesus went by and looked at Peter. I recall. So Peter's gathered out by this. He's made this thing and. And he comes into the high priest's complex, which is an, it's a large housing area. Comes into this complex because the, the gatekeeper recognizes John by faith. Now, keep that in mind. John's family, the sons of Zebedee, are no small matter. When the high priest's pre, uh, servant just goes, oh, you know, Mr. Zebedee, welcome. You know, and in you come. Uh, you're, you're somebody. So John comes in and says, he's with me. So Peter gets to come in too. And so Peter's out there, you know, by the fire. And you recall, a servant girl comes up and says, you were with him, weren't you? And, he, and, then, and then we enter into kind of an ugly time. He says, no, I don't know him. And then somebody else says, you've got an accent. You're one of those northerners. And, and then he gets vulgar and actually curses. If you get into the language, he actually, it's, it's vulgar. And he says, I don't know him. And he does it three times, and then the cock crows. Do you recall this? And then at, at some point, Jesus walked by. After being, he's, and Jesus, our Lord's been beaten. His face is, is, is uh, puffed, and who knows what is going on. And he comes by, and he looks at him, and they make eye contact. And Peter dies inside and goes out and, and weeps. Uh, thank heavens he did not kill himself, as Judas did. Uh, and... and so Jesus restores him. That's what, do I say it here? Jesus did not abandon Peter. After the, recon, as, after the resurrection, he met him privately in what must have been a time of confession and repentance. And then on a beach beside the Sea of Galilee, he restored him to his proper place. He gave him the opportunity to confess his love for him three times to replace those three denials. In effect, Jesus washed Peter's dusty feet, and he wants to wash ours as well. So here we have the three denials. Peter goes out into the darkness. But after the resurrection, we're not, we've not recorded the event, but we're told twice that it happened. One of the first people Jesus saw on a private meeting was he appeared to Peter. Now, you know what that conversation was about. He allowed Peter to confess his sins and repent of this. He had a dialogue with him. And then we see, uh, at some weeks later, up in the Galilee, uh, Jesus appears on the beach, you recall this, and, and he has this dialogue with Peter, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, what? Feed my sheep. And then he says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Peter's now getting the, oh, I know where we're going with this. You know, and, and, and Peter, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And he says, Feed, tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Oh. And then he gets, he, Peter says, yes, Lord, I, I, I love you. You know that. And he says, feed, feed my sheep. What was he doing? He was replacing each denial with a confession. So Peter's memory, he's healing Peter. He has not just received his confession. He's going into the damage and replacing that memory with a confession. Isn't that beautiful? This is called washing feet. You see, washing, it is, it, he, not only does he forgive him, he restores him. And, draws, and he says, feed my sheep. He's charging him each time. Not only for receiving forgiveness and, and making him repent of the denial, but saying, you're a pastor. You're my pastor. You take care of my people. You feed them. You teach them. You watch over them, Peter. You're an apostle. I'm sending you. Care for my people. 
You hear him? Reinvesting him. Reinvesting him. Putting him right back where he belonged after his damage. Isn't that beautiful? This is what he means when he's talking about washing feet. Our advocate. And I, I have the text, but I have it all in the thing. We can read it in a minute. First John. The idea that we need ongoing cleansing raises some important questions. How is this done? Must we confess every sin or just the ones we know about? What if we miss one? Years later, John would write a letter to believers that helps to answer these questions. Listen, and would you read this? Let's read it slowly and, and out loud. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, parakletos, Someone who comes and stands beside us when we call for help. That's what the word means. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And I'll explain propitiation in just a moment. Obviously, John expects believers to continue confessing their sins to God with the assurance that Jesus will intercede on our behalf and forgive those sins. He says every believer sins, doesn't he? He says, if you think, don't think you're sinning, you're deluded, is what he says. And you make him a liar, because he says you do. God's word says you do. Jesus taught them they did. He says, if you think you don't, you're just deceiving yourself, because you do. And if we don't think we do, we are deceiving ourselves. The proper response when we sin isn't denial. It's to quickly come to Jesus. By calling Jesus our propitiation, he is picturing him as our high priest. The propitiation was the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat each year on the Day of Atonement. Just as, Jesus, as Israel's high priest sprinkled blood on the gold cover on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as a way of asking God to forgive the nation's sins, John says Jesus constantly applies the blood he shed on the cross to our sins. Now, let me, let me go and describe this propitiation. The Ark of the Covenant's about, about that long, about that wide, about, about that high. Uh, and on the top of it was, was this gold lid. And it's called the mercy seat, or in Greek, in, in the book of Hebrews, he refers to it by its term, the propitiatory. So this is the propitiation. You remember this thing, is, it's, it's this gold plate, and it has two cherubim on it. And uh, it, we don't know, but it appears that they were like kneeling angels, uh, kneeling, and, and they're, 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 they're looking down at that at the surface of the plate. They're gazing in wonder at it. And then their wings are stretched out towards each other uh, like that. They don't touch, but there's this, these, these wings coming and then they're looking down. On the Day of Atonement, on behalf of the entire nation, the high priest comes and he actually crawls under the curtain uh, between, the, between the handles. They actually stuck out past it, the, the carrying handles of the, of the ark. And, he's, and he comes before it, and uh, he takes blood, and he has a bowl of blood, and he's with his finger, dips it in the blood, and seven times he will sprinkle it on the ground. And then he will sprinkle it on the propitiatory. He will sprinkle the propitiation before God. Seven times he will put blood on that, on that surface before, uh, before the Lord, appealing uh, to the Lord for mercy for the nation, that God would forgive him. John says, Jesus is our high priest. And when you and I call on him, he comes and he sprinkles his blood before the Father. He says, I died for her. I died for him. My blood is powerful. My life was given for them. And we're forgiven and our sins are washed away. He's our priest. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, don't deny, don't blame somebody else, don't get into that game. Confess it freely to him, 
and let him wash you clean. Hallelujah. The point is, we must regularly come to Jesus and let him cleanse us. He knows what is sin and what is not. Our responsibility is to stay humble and honest. To stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit and confess what we know. He does not expect us to confess every single sin. We don't even recognize many of the sins we commit. By regularly presenting ourselves to Jesus and reaffirming our faith in him, all our sins are cleansed. This does, this does absolute wonders for us. Because, not because sin doesn't matter, but because mercy is abundant. I can come and I don't, I, I don't have to deny anymore. I don't have to say, I didn't do that, I didn't mean that. I, I can just be, it, it teaches me to be honest with myself. I can now look in my heart and go, Ugh, man, that was wrong. I can be honest with God. I don't have to blame anyone else. I mean, this has just seeped into our culture so deep. We're all victims. And so it's not my fault. It's my, it's my mother's fault or my father's fault or my, your fault or somebody else's fault. Or I, this. And I don't say we haven't been abused. And I don't say we haven't been damaged and things have been introduced to our lives that we didn't ask for. I know that. And yet there is areas where you and I have to be honest and say, and yet I reacted badly. And I chose in my flesh to do this or say this or let that attitude settle. And it didn't belong there. We have to own our stuff. We have to own our part of it. And this is what it, it, it so I'm honest with myself. I'm honest with God. I, I'm not blaming. I'm not denying. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not simply avoiding. So what it does is teaches me an, a level of honesty. I become honest with God. I become honest with myself, which, may I add, teaches me to be honest with you. It's just walking in the grace of Jesus Christ makes me honest. Yeah, I, 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 yes, I did uh, say something stupid. Yes, that was wrong. Uh, and I call it just what it is. And I'm also forgiven and restored and loved. You see, there's no shame. I'm not left shameful. I'm not left with self-loathing. I'm not left with all of this. Well, all, I, can, I can, can I use the word boldly? I can boldly just come before him with, and here it is again. Boy, I'm sorry. How many times? Never mind. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. See, there's no end to the mercy. You say, well, boy, what happens when you've been messing with something in a long time? You keep repenting a long time. You just keep at it. You keep at it. It's part of how you get free. You are coming free. He doesn't want you staying in this. Understand. And you don't, at this point, maybe know how to get out. Or haven't chosen to do all that he's told you to do. You're in a, but that's a childish process. He's a father teaching you. But while you do it, don't harden your heart. Don't come up with excuses. Don't tolerate the evil. Just confess it. And let your Lord wash your feet. Hallelujah. One another. But there's more. Jesus also said this. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. When he said that, he was in the upper room with his disciples, so the words one another mean disciples washing disciples' feet. On one level, that means we are to humbly serve each other as he served us. But just as we've seen, we, uh, foot washing at its deepest level means forgiving and restoring believers when they sin. That's what he was teaching them when he washed their feet. He was saying when they sinned, he would clean them. And by telling them to wash one another's feet, he was telling them to help one another if one of them sinned. You see what's happening now? Not only is he saying, I will wash your feet, he's telling them, you wash each other's feet. I want you helping one another. When someone stumbles, when someone sins, when someone's got an issue, you help them and you wash their feet. That means, one, I must forgive your sins when you sin against me, and you must forgive mine. Do you hear that? The, the verse I've given there, that Matthew 18, you know that one. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has said, if you will not forgive me, neither will Father in heaven forgive you. And Peter then comes out, dear Peter, he comes out with the question, well, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? And he feels he's being generous. Seven's a good number, right? Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but what? 
70 times 7, meaning you just keep at it, Peter. You just keep at it. Uh, I'm not asking you to be the judge. I'm asking you to for, just be merciful. You just keep forgiving. Doesn't mean you're naive. Doesn't mean you're gullible. Doesn't mean you just, but it means you, don't, you do not harbor that thing in your heart. You'll find that there's situations in people that you often have to forgive for years. Uh, I have situations where, and it's not, I'm honestly, it's not in this church, but I have situations where it's a pretty much a, a, a daily or weekly thing where I just need to re-forgive. And in the process, the Lord's taught me, forgiveness doesn't just mean like, oh God, I forgive them. It means I got to bless them. So there are certain people that are getting regular prayer. <laughs> they are getting blessed. They are getting interceded for. I'm serious. I, I mean, what is, what, what is a wound actually turns into a source of blessing. It's nuts. You know, I'm just constantly interceding for certain people. Hallelujah. And I, number two, I must confront you if necessary and help to restore you when you repent. And you must do the same for me. Listen to Paul. Let's read this out loud. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Did you notice the word gentleness? Paul says if someone is caught into something or caught doing something, you who are spiritual, who are walking in the spirit, you restore them, and then he just puts that right in there, with a spirit of gentleness of meekness. Don't you come in proud and self-righteous. Don't you come in there and, you, and, and, and slam that person. And then he, gives a, he actually gives a threat. Did you see it? He says, because if you come in with that proud attitude, God will let you walk in their shoes. And I, I can just vouch for it because I've done this. <laughs> Aren't you glad? I, I'll, send it, I'll do the stupid stuff before you do. What happens is God says, so you're so good, are you? So you're so, uh, so you're so righteous, are you? But why don't I let you feel what they've been feeling? And let's see how you do. And he'll put you right into the same fire and let you, let's just let you find out how. And what, what happens is, someone, someone said, the, 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 the best minister is someone who has, who, has, who has been wounded. Someone who has fallen. Someone who's had found their own uh, weakness. You know, you may say, I've got this wild history. That, what that'll do is make you compassionate. What it does is it just takes that self-righteousness and throws it out the window. And, and, and you can minister to somebody as a brother or a sister, not, 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 not with that kind of proud thing. So Paul says, when you do this, you do it gently and you do it kindly. And on an earlier occasion, Jesus described this process in step-by-step in step detail. Listen, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, you, 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 cut off, you cut off regular fellowship. And by church, I take that to mean you know, you're not making some public announcement to people who don't have any clue who this is, but talking to people who know that person, people who are around that person. Jesus says, here's what you do. When, when, someone, when someone sins, you first of all go privately. And privately and respectfully, you talk to them. And you appeal to them as a brother or a sister. This is wrong. And if they don't listen to you, then, then take some others who know the situation and let them appeal and come together as a community. And, so, and, and reach out to that person. And if they, don't, if they refuse to listen to all of that and are, are, are bent and determined to continue on, then separate out. Uh, but again, even that is done uh, uh, respectfully and uh, lovingly. He instructs us to approach a brother or sister who has sinned in a serious way and has not responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction so as to confess and repent on their own. Clearly, Jesus does not expect us to mind our own business. Did you see that? He does not expect you to mind your own business. Look, we, this, in the American culture right now, everyone is ferociously independent. 
this is my thing, you do your thing, leave me alone, Don't, how, how dare you? The, the, the number one scripture I think people know by heart is judge not lest you be judged. That and Jesus drank wine. Um, <laughs> and what they mean by that is, don't you tell me what to do. Johnny, your business, I'll do what I want to do. God says it's all right for me to do this vile thing. Hallelujah. I have a prophetic word. I have had one prophetic word after another where people do some things and just say, God told me I could. Nonsense. When it violates the word of God, you're making it up. You're right out of your flesh. You're justifying. This is self-justification. It's nothing less than that. It's sort of a psychological technique. Don't go there. And that's why, so he does not say, when I watch someone stumble, when I watch someone caught in something, it's like, well, too bad for them. I have an obligation to you. You're my brother and my sister. My sister. We are family, and I'm yours. We're in this. We are going to be together, whether you think so or not. We're going to be together forever. If you don't like me, you have one wild future. Because <laughs> I'll be there. And, and one of the... <laughs> I will. And you know, we've got, we got all the time in the world. So we're going to, no kidding, we're going to know each other. I mean, we've got time to, to, to just talk and be together and fellowship and hear one another's stories. I mean, this is, I think, part of the, part of the wonder of, of eternity. It's just all the beautiful stories and getting to know the family. This is what we're called to, and this is where we're headed. And so he's teaching us... Uh, we're a, we care for each other. We're family. We're not attendees at some religious function. We're not in this for our own thing. We're in a family and responsible for each other. He orders us to bear our, be our brother's keeper, to take the initiative, to confront that person respectfully and privately. I read this, didn't I? Oh, well. He says that if that person listens to you, meaning receives correction and repents, you have won your brother, implying that that person's... If, that, if the person refuses, we might lose him or her. What does that mean? I think the parable he taught just before he gave these instructions provides an answer. He spoke about a shepherd who left 99 sheep to search for one who had strayed. And when he found it, he rejoiced. Here is his conclusion. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That lost sheep surely would have perished if it had not been restored to the shepherd. And then Jesus spoke those words about what to do if your brother sins. Do you follow? He says, the man's got 99 sheep, and he doesn't say, well, I got a lot of sheep. What's one lost sheep? He goes after that sheep. And he says, and when he found it, he rejoiced for that sheep would have perished. And, he said, and then he says, and if you see your brother sin, you go. And you speak, no, go after the lost sheep. That's exactly what he meant. He said that, that whole passage is talking about finding lost sheep. You go after them just as, as I would. How serious a sin must it be before it becomes that dangerous? And how long can a person wait before repenting is a matter only God can answer. Jesus didn't answer those questions, but he did explain what he expects us to do if we see another believer wandering away. We're to go after them, and if they allow us, we are to forgive, to forgive and restore them. We're to wash their feet just as he has washed ours. Conclusion. On that final evening, Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. In the future, he would spiritually present them, uh, present, he would be spiritually present with them, forgive me. He would be spiritually present with them, but not physically present as he had been for the past few years. The first topic he addressed was what to do when someone sinned. By washing their feet, he showed them that he wanted them to bring those sins to him whenever they occurred, and he assured them that he would wash them away just as he had washed the dust off their feet. The second topic he addressed was to teach them to wash one another's dusty feet, especially in the matter of confronting and restoring someone who had sinned. They were to reach out to that person kindly and privately, speak the truth to them, and if and when that person repented, they were to help wash away the damage that had resulted. The words he spoke that evening were not meant only for the 12 men gathered in that upper room. They were meant for all of us who have chosen 
to be his disciples. For all of us who love him and call him our Lord, we too must let him wash our dusty feet. And then we too must turn around and wash one another's feet. You see what I mean about coming to the word of God and looking and letting Jesus disciple us. Today, we have watched Jesus. We watched him in that upper room. We've, un, we've done our best to understand his words. And what he told us was, I want to keep washing your feet. Come to me when you're dirty. Come to me when you fail. I'll wash you. The mercy is there. Don't deny it. Don't run away from it. Don't blame somebody else. Don't go there. Just come and let me wash you. And I'll do that until I see you face to face. Don't we love him? What a wonderful Lord we have. We can do this. Keeps us honest. Keeps his holy standards in place. We don't compromise those things. Yet it also allows us to live without guilt and shame. Allows us to live uh, growing. Getting more and more like him day by day as we walk with him. Which is the whole process. It's, a, it's, a, it's growing up. And then he says to us, and I want you to care for one another. Wash one another's feet. Just as I've washed yours, you wash each other's feet. So when you see a brother or a sister struggle, don't you ignore that. You pray for them, and then as the Lord opens an opportunity, if you need to, you go talk to them. You stand with them, and, and, and don't judge them. Do it humbly. Do it kindly. But you help them. And if they're willing to, receive, to repent, you restore them. Remember how he restored Peter? He, he just literally healed him and put him right back in place. You do that for people. You do that for each other. I'm with you in spirit, but you're my hands and feet. You're my body. And I want you, I want to work through you and care for you the way I've been doing through you. So are we willing today to say, I, we're family. I mean, not just the limits of this church, to every believer, wherever God is placing us. Will we be brothers and sisters? Will we wash one another's feet? And will we let him wash ours? Heavenly Father, we, we hear your word and we watch your beloved son. We would be such disciples. Jesus, how can we thank you for the mercy that is there for washing us clean over and over when our feet get dusty? We've taken our bath. We've trusted in you as our great Lord and Savior. We wear the righteousness of Christ. Our hearts been transformed by your wonderful miracle. But Lord, our feet do get dusty. Thank you for washing us. Give us humility, kindness, and love for one another that we would also wash one another's feet. Thank you, Lord. You're teaching us to be an eternal family. We receive it in Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with me, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.